Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Crystal, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's workshop, Progress in the Treatment of Follicular Lymphoma. And today's program is a collaborative effort between cancer care and many other blood cancer and cancer organizations. And it really is because of that collaboration and all of your interest in this topic on follicular lymphoma, and we have on the call today over 472 participants. And you come from all over the United States, um, from all different regions of this country, um, and we also have international participants from Canada, Croatia, Ireland, and the United Kingdom. So it's a bit of a global call as well. And um, today's program is supported by AbbVie, the Celgene Corporation, Gilead, Novartis Oncology, and an educational grant from Veristem Oncology. I really want to thank them for their support of this program today. Now, we have wonderful speakers on the program today. And I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Peter Martin. Dr. Martin is Associate Professor of Medicine, Chief of the Lymphoma Program, while Cornell Medicine. And Dr. Martin is going to be addressing an overview of follicular lymphoma, treatment options for newly diagnosed, key questions to ask your healthcare team, and quality of life concerns. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Martin. Thanks a lot, Dr. Messner. It's um, always a pleasure to be invited and have the opportunity to um, uh, talk with your uh, large and, and uh, always uh, well-educated and uh, informed audience. We always get some interesting questions, and I'll be interested to hear what uh, people are, are interested in these days. So uh, as you mentioned, my job is to talk a little bit about um, follicular lymphoma um, when it's first been diagnosed and what we tend to do about it. And I think the, when I meet somebody with a new uh, diagnosis of follicular lymphoma, the common questions that come up are, you know, what is this follicular lymphoma? How did I get it? And uh, what are we going to do about it? So the first thing I'll talk about a little bit is uh, what is follicular lymphoma? So lymphoma, by definition, is um, uh, lymph, so the lymphatic system or lymph nodes, and oma means a tumor. So it's lymphomas. Uh, on, broadly speaking, are, are tumors that form in lymph nodes and the lymphatic system. These are white blood cell cancers. The term follicular lymphoma essentially means that when we look at these lymph nodes under the microscope, the lymphoma or cancer cells are arranged in a follicular or a nodular uh, pattern. And it's a, it's a pretty old term based on how these lymph nodes have looked under the microscope for a long time. A long time. We don't really do anything to get follicular lymphoma. It's not like, um, for example, an association between smoking and lung cancer. There's not a really strong association between family history and follicular lymphoma the way there might be with colon cancer, for example, or breast cancer. Uh, for the most part, and there, there are subtle, subtle differences from place to place, and maybe some role for um, 
heritability, but for the most part, follicular lymphoma, and in fact most lymphomas, are just a consequence of having a normal immune system. Our immune system is this miraculous system that uh, exists to fight against infection, past, present, and future, and that part of that uh, means that it changes over time, and it's constantly changing throughout our whole life. That means the longer we've been around, the more likely some of these changes are to have happened from a genetic perspective. Uh, genes mutate in these white blood cells all the time, and if we've been around for 50 years or 60 years or 70 years, the longer we've been around, the more likely some of these genetic changes are to have happened. And some of these genetic changes predispose to developing uh, different kinds of white blood cell cancers. Turns out follicular lymphoma is surprisingly common, and in fact, it's probably a lot more common than we recognize, and that a lot of people have uh, either real follicular lymphoma or precursors to follicular lymphoma and may uh, never learn about it. Uh, nonetheless, uh, when follicular lymphoma is diagnosed, it's usually because somebody has noticed uh, an enlarged lymph node or has a new symptom that results in uh, imaging detecting a large lymph node and the patho or a surgeon will do a biopsy uh, and we see follicular lymphoma under the microscope and then the questions become, okay, what are we going to uh, do about it at this point? And so the uh, lymphoma doctor at that point um, first confirms again that this is really follicular lymphoma. We try to learn a little bit about where it is. And then also critically, we try to learn a little bit about the person that has lymphoma. I always say to people, you know, there are a hundred different kinds of lymphoma, but there are you know, seven billion people on, on Earth, and every one of these people is a little bit different, and so it's important to take that into the uh, context of coming up with a management plan. When we treat lymphoma, we keep in mind that the goal of treating follicular lymphoma is to minimize its impact on somebody's life. So that there are different treatment goals when we're managing different kinds of lymphoma, but again, when we're managing follicular lymphoma, I'll say it again, the goal is to minimize the impact of follicular lymphoma on somebody's life. And it, uh, in some cases, that might mean uh, standing back and not, not taking an active treatment approach. In some cases, that might be um, uh, being a little bit more aggressive and intervening. So when uh, we're um, initially working up follicular lymphoma, one of the uh, goals is to sort of figure out how much lymphoma there is, uh, whether it's changing very quickly or growing very quickly, and whether it's causing symptoms or is likely to cause symptoms in the near future. And if it's not doing any of those things, uh, what we've learned over time is that there doesn't seem to be a major advantage to starting treatment early on. And this can be sort of an unusual thing to hear for somebody who is not familiar with uh, follicular lymphoma. may feel like I've just learned that I have lymphoma and my doctor is telling me to ignore it and do nothing about it. And it's because uh, several studies over several decades have demonstrated that intervening early in somebody without uh, lymphoma that's growing quickly or causing Intervening early does not seem to be associated with an impact in uh, longevity. And so 
So if somebody has no symptoms or is unlikely to experience symptoms related to lymphoma, then we're unlikely to make them feel better or live longer by intervening early. Uh, in fact, most people with follicular lymphoma, over 80% of people with follicular lymphoma, are going to live as long as the general population without lymphoma. And so most commonly, the goal of treatment uh, with follicular lymphoma is really to manage symptoms when they arise or, or before they arise. So again, somebody without symptoms, without active, uh, actively growing lymphoma, oftentimes we'll just observe it. Uh, very frequently, that means we might be observing it for a couple of years or a few years. Occasionally, people will uh, defer therapy for longer than that, sometimes uh, even beyond a decade. And so um, given that many people with follicular lymphoma are in are diagnosed in their 70s, it may be that they never require treatment at all. Uh, some people with follicular lymphoma are in their 40s or 50s or 60s and have a lot of stuff going on in life, uh, work, children, and uh, it may be that intervening with treatment uh, imp impairs their ability to uh, enjoy life and enjoy the things that they uh, need to be doing on a daily basis. Nonetheless, at, at some point, most people with follicular lymphoma will require treatment. And then our job as oncologists is to try to pick the treatment that's most likely to minimize the impact of lymphoma on their life. And, and so if the lymphoma is not causing a lot of problems, uh, in general, we try to intervene in a fairly minimal way. And that's with a treatment called rituximab. And I'll talk about that in a second. If the lymphoma is um, likely to cause a lot of symptoms, or if there's a lot of lymphoma, in general, we intervene with a combination of rituximab with uh, chemotherapy. So I mentioned rituximab. Uh, briefly, rituximab is not chemotherapy. It's a biological drug. It's a, it's a monoclonal antibody. So antibodies are proteins that are made by our immune system to fight against infections or foreign invaders. And a long time ago, people in the lab figured out a way to create antibodies that would fight against tumors like follicular lymphoma. And in essence, follicular lymphoma or rituximab works with our immune system together to kill follicular lymphoma cells. And, uh, so it's very attractive because it's very targeted to lymphoma cells. And it's attractive because it works with our own immune system to kill these lymphoma cells. It doesn't have the same kinds of uh, side effects that traditional chemotherapy does. And uh, it has been shown uh, over, over the past 25 years to significantly improve outcomes of people with follicular lymphoma. Uh, so sometimes we can do that by itself. Uh, occasionally, if somebody has more lymphoma or actively growing lymphoma, we tend to combine rituximab uh, with chemotherapy. And the goal there is to uh, get rid of the lymphoma a little bit faster and to get rid of the lymphoma a little bit longer. So in other words, to produce a remission that's going to last for several years, hopefully. So with that, we've found that we're pretty effective with either of those approaches. We're pretty effective at controlling lymphoma and minimizing its impact on, on somebody's life. Uh, nonetheless, there's always room for improvement. And um, obviously, one way we would like to improve outcomes is by making treatments better. 
the other way we would like to improve outcomes is by um, making better tolerable, uh, better tolerated treatments. So um, just over the past couple of years, uh, we've seen one attempt at improving uh, treatment outcomes uh, was by replacing rituximab, the biological drug I uh, spoke about, with a newer version of rituximab, uh, which is called obinutuzumab. Um, and it turns out uh, combining obinutuzumab with chemotherapy can, in fact, uh, result in um, remissions that last a little bit longer. The difference uh, over rituximab is relatively modest, and it does come with uh, more side effects, which include infections. And so it's an important discussion uh, with the oncologist about the uh, pros and cons of uh, that approach. The chemotherapy drugs themselves uh, can be very effective. Uh, it would be nice, however, if we could come up with a treatment that did not involve chemotherapy. And I mentioned that one uh, goal has been to produce a treatment that would be as effective or more effective in chemotherapy but doesn't involve chemotherapy. And so uh, we saw last year the results of a trial called the RELEVANCE trial, which essentially replaced chemotherapy with a pill called lenalidomide. Lenalidomide is a, a, a pill that... Um, has multiple effects, uh, including uh, direct anti-tumor effects, and also it stimulates the immune system. And so it would make sense to combine something that stimulates the immune system, like lenalidomide, with another drug, like rituximab, which also works with the immune system. And so in this trial, uh, people received either uh, chemotherapy plus rituximab or rituximab plus lenalidomide. And um, essentially, both approaches were equally effective, which was um, in a lot of ways encouraging. I think you know one hope was that the non-chemotherapy approach would be more effective, but it, it turns out it wasn't. It was equally effective. The other thing we learned was that the side effect profile of uh, both of those approaches are just different. I would not say necessarily that one is uh, better tolerated than the other, but rather that they're a little bit different. So I think when people are speaking with their physician about treatment approaches, it's reasonable to ask about lenalidomide and rituximab. Uh, it's not currently approved by the FDA, but it is a reasonable option for some people. But it should be very clear that it's not, just because it's not chemotherapy, it doesn't mean that it has no side effects. It's just a different treatment approach. And um, it's worthwhile to have an in-depth discussion about it. So again, uh, lastly, I'll just mention that when we're, when we're talking about um, management approaches, the real key from my perspective in discussing uh, first-line treatment approaches is, you know, what, how is this going to impact my, my life on a, on a regular basis? If the goal is to minimize the impact of lymphoma on my life, how is this treatment approach going to do that? And I think also... The other question that sort of follows on that is what what are we thinking of down the line if um, if this isn't going to be effective, what might be the next uh, strategy just not 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 to obsess too much over that, but to have a little bit of an idea of, of the fact that um, we are going to be dealing with this on and off over over a long period of time and to sort of start uh, thinking long term I think is also appropriate so I think that's 
uh, end of my time, and uh, I'm looking forward to hearing questions at the end and, and from hearing what Dr. Smith has to say about um, uh, previously treated lymphomas. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Martin. That was really outstanding and a wonderful um, beginning to the call, setting the stage for the call, really excellent. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you so much for that comprehensive overview. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Sonali Smith. Dr. Smith is the Elwood V. Jensen Professor of Medicine, Director of Lymphoma Program, University of Chicago Medicine. And Dr. Smith will be addressing treatment options for relapsed refractory disease, the role of clinical trials, how research contributes to treatment options, clinical trial updates, and managing side effects and discomfort. It's now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Smith. Wonderful. Thank you so much, and thank you to both Dr. Martin and Dr. Messner for their comments so far. So I'm going to cover the treatment options for relapsed and refractory disease, touch on clinical trials, some clinical trial updates, and then also managing side effects and discomfort. So I, the best place to pick up, I think, is where Dr. Martin uh, just uh, left off, which is that follicular lymphoma is a chronic disease. It is a waxing and waning disease, which means that sometimes it grows, sometimes it shrinks. The goal of treatment is to beat it down into remission and to try to do that with the least amount of side effects and keep people in remission for the longest duration possible. Um, we are not trying to cure the disease, we are trying to control the disease. And um, as Dr. Martin stated, this is uh, often highly successful for many years, if not several decades. So when it comes to talking about relapsed and refractory disease, I think the first thing I want to get across is that um, for the vast majority of people, this is a disease that comes back, and uh, that is not something to, um, you know, it's something to expect and not be uh, worried about why it happened. This is just part of how the disease goes. And when the disease comes back, the first thing we do is try to determine whether or not a person needs therapy. Uh, again, in the relapsed setting, uh, treatment is there to make people feel better. Uh, and try to minimize the side effects of the disease on their life. And some people can have their lymphoma come back, whether it's seen on a CT scan or because they feel it um, you know, on their own body or their doctor finds it, and that does not automatically mean that treatment is needed. It really depends on whether or not people have symptoms related to the disease, whether or not their blood work is abnormal, or if they have any organs that might be in danger if these lymph nodes are too close or too large. The other thing to make sure when follicular lymphoma comes back is to make sure there isn't something called transformation. So as Dr. Martin said, there are about 80 to 100 different types of non-Hodgkin lymphoma, and many of them are, are cousins of each other, if you will. Follicular lymphoma can sometimes, about 3% of people per year, transform into a more angry disease or a more aggressive disease, and when it does, we call it transformed follicular lymphoma, usually to a different lymphoma called diffuse large B-cell. So it's very important when the follicular lymphoma or if the lymph nodes seem to be growing or if the lymphoma has come back, that either a biopsy is done to make sure that it hasn't transformed or to have that discussion with your doctor and make sure that your doctor does not feel it has transformed. The second uh, piece that we take into account is whether or not the disease has come back quickly after the first-line treatment 
or not quickly. And the time period we use to say what is quick versus not quick is two years. Um, we've learned very recently um, it, that patients who have their follicular lymphoma come back within two years of their initial chemotherapy may need more aggressive therapy or may need more urgent therapy. And so again, this is a conversation to have with your physician is whether or not they feel you have high-risk disease based on how long uh, the response or the remission went from your frontline treatment to the second line. Um, and then the final thing that we discuss when we are in the setting of the lymphoma having come back is to talk to the patient about what he or she wants. Um, some people uh, wish for very aggressive therapy, others do not. Sometimes your organ function may determine this, and certainly what your own desires are are a part of the treatment-making um, concept or the decision-making uh, concept. So if treatment is indicated uh, in the relapse setting, we don't really have a set sequence of treatments. And this is both good and bad. The good is we have many, many options. The bad is we don't always know, uh, as a medical community, which option is best first, second, third, or fourth. So in other words, we don't really know very much about the best sequence of therapies, but we do have many therapies to offer. These therapies range in intensity, and they also range in duration, and they also range uh, in, in terms of side effects. So just to give you an example of some of the options that are available when follicular lymphoma comes back, one option is to go back to the antibodies that Dr. Martin mentioned, whether it's rituximab or obinutuzumab. These monoclonal antibodies are targeted treatments that will uh, shrink lymph nodes, although I think by themselves, these antibodies do not usually put people back into a complete remission, but they can control the disease for a short period of time. Often, we combine these antibodies with chemotherapy, and some of the chemotherapies that we can use in the relapse setting include chemotherapy agents such as bendamustine, sometimes something called ARCHOP, and uh, those are probably the two most common chemotherapies that we consider for people who have follicular lymphoma that has come back. If the follicular lymphoma has come back uh, very quickly or in a more aggressive way, some centers, but not all, will consider very aggressive uh, chemotherapy in the form of an autologous stem cell transplant. And what an autologous stem cell transplant is, is a fancy way of giving very high doses of chemotherapy in an effort to eliminate any resistant follicular lymphoma cells. Um, autologous transplants were used much more commonly about 15 years ago, uh, but have fallen out of favor because the high doses of chemotherapy do have uh, significant side effects, and not all patients are great candidates for an autologous stem cell transplant. So this is a question that, that you should ask your physician uh, whether or not this is right for you or not. But again, the trend has been to move away from that. A fourth option is something called radioimmunotherapy. And radioimmunotherapy is essentially a Trojan horse or a targeted way of delivering radiation just to the tumor cells. So this is an IV treatment that goes in by vein, finds its target, which is the same target as rituximab, CD20, but this time releases a small amount of radiation. Radioimmunotherapy has been FDA approved in the United States for over 15 years. Um, and has to be given in specialized centers, but is a very short one-week treatment that is effective for some people. 
Not all centers have availability, so again, this is something to ask about. What's happened um, that's kind of new over the last uh, several years in terms of targeted uh, agents is that we now have two new classes of drugs that are available for people with relapsed follicular lymphoma. One of them is uh, immunomodulatory agents, uh, lenalidomide, which Dr. Martin already mentioned, and the other is a class of drugs that are uh, kinase inhibitors. They are PI3 kinase inhibitors, and PI3 kinase is essentially a protein that you can think about as a switch, that follicular lymphoma cells have the switch in the on position, and when you give pills to block the switch, you can turn it off and those follicular lymphoma cells uh, will die and we can help control the disease. Today we have uh, three different PI3 kinase inhibitors that are FDA approved for use in follicular lymphoma. Uh, these are idelalisib, duvalisib, and copanlisib. It's not really clear uh, which one is better or worse. They do have different side effects. Uh, some are pills and some are IV but these are all FDA-approved options uh, that can be discussed as well. So in terms of what is standard options, I think we have many different things to consider uh, between aggressive and non-aggressive, oral versus IV, and even something as, uh, as intense as transplant for some people. But again, we don't know which one is the best treatment, and there is no clear winner today. When it comes to clinical trials, um, I just want to spend a moment to review what clinical trials are. Clinical trials are ways in which we can determine if new treatments are effective in people with follicular lymphoma uh, and whether or not they are better than what's already available. There are three types of clinical trials. There are phase one, phase two, and phase three trials. Phase one trials are designed to find the best dose of a treatment or a combination of drugs. So usually phase one trials are ones where we are still adjusting the dose and determining what the side effects are. Once we know what the safe dose is, we move on to phase two trials. And phase two trials allow us to test a combination in a relatively small number of people, usually um, 100 or maybe a little bit more than that, to see if we can get an idea of how active a particular treatment might be. And then phase three trials are those where we uh, use what we learned in our phase two trial and compare it against the standard of care. It's important to know that there's been a major shift in how new drugs and new treatments are discovered and how trials are designed. Uh, I often hear that people do not want to be a guinea pig and they don't want to get a placebo, both of which are very understandable concerns. However, the way that we pick these drugs today is very different than 15, 20, or 30 years ago. At that time, the way we had new drugs to test was very random and really just depended on an almost decades-long uh, experience in the lab before we would bring drugs to humans. Today, progress has allowed us to understand how lymphomas tick, to figure out which pathways we want to go after, which biologic processes we want to target, and then design drugs to do those things and then bring it. So in other words, clinical trials today have a much higher likelihood of having something that makes sense to test in follicular lymphoma and hopefully work in follicular lymphoma. And I think clinical trials are very important um, for us to be able to move forward 
and I do think that many people who are in clinical trials have access to some of the most uh, innovative and exciting things, and we've had more drugs FDA approved for lymphoma in the last five years than I think we did in the previous 10 or 15. So going back to clinical trials in follicular lymphoma, we've had several major trials um, that have been presented in the last year or two, and Dr. Martin mentioned two of these. One is something called the relevance trial that looks at lenalidomide in people who have lenalidomide and rituximab in people who have newly diagnosed follicular lymphoma. The second is something called the gallium trial, which looks at a newer version of rituximab, this obinutuzumab, in people who have newly diagnosed follicular lymphoma. And the trial that I wanted to just uh, mention, because it's one of the larger trials uh, recently published, is something called the AUGMENT trial, um, which again looks at this pill called lenalidomide plus rituximab versus rituximab alone, specifically in people with follicular lymphoma whose disease has come back. So this was a phase three trial where we were trying to determine whether or not lenalidomide and rituximab was better than rituximab alone, and it appears that uh, there is some improvement in the response rate and how long patients stay in remission, although um, something called overall survival, which means how long people actually live, was about the same. So these types of trials give us new uh, options uh, when we have somebody with relapsed follicular lymphoma, and we can say with confidence in terms of data, what is the expected response rate, what is the expected side effect profile, and what can you expect. So those types of trials are very important. Going forward, uh, there are some very promising uh, agents and uh, trials. I think one that I'll just mention uh, is something called CAR-T, or chimeric antigen receptor T-cells. This is a form of immunotherapy that has been uh, quite successful in a related lymphoma called diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, but essentially takes T-cells from patients with follicular lymphoma, re-engineers them, gives them back to the patient, and there these T-cells try to find the follicular lymphoma cells, and then upon finding them, they are activated and then destroy them. Uh, this is not FDA approved. It's still going through clinical trials, and uh, we're trying to determine who the best patients for this might be that will uh, benefit the most and uh, where this, this therapy might go. There are a number of other uh, promising and ongoing trials, and perhaps I can hit on that during the question and answer uh, session. But just to get to the very last topic uh, that uh, Dr. Messner asked me to uh, touch on, and that is to talk about managing side effects and discomfort. And so although this is uh, a little different than what we've just been talking about, I think this may be one of the most important pieces uh, when, when we are working together as a team to get somebody to feel better. So the first thing in terms of side effects and discomfort is that communication is key. You have to speak to your treating team, whether it's your nurse, nurse practitioner, physician assistant, physician, uh, anybody who is part of the, the treatment team. If you don't speak up, it's very difficult for people to know um, how best to help you. I think documenting side effects makes a lot of sense, and many of my patients have either notebooks or calendars in which they write, but there's also some really well-designed apps uh, that you can have on your phone. I know Lymphoma Research Foundation has a wonderful app, as does the American Society of Clinical Oncology. Um, there are some common side effects of treatment, 
uh, including GI effects such as nausea or vomiting or loss of appetite. And again, it's important to know how severe that is and whether or not it's affecting your quality of life, your weight, uh, and your daily function. Uh, fatigue, neuropathy, and psychological effects. All of these are side effects that are very common. You are not alone when you feel these, and uh, it's, again, very important to speak up and to see if perhaps lowering the dose of your treatment, changing the schedule, or somehow uh, adjusting what you are receiving can be done to help you feel better, or if there might be some supportive care, such as anti-nausea medications, um, antimicrobials, or other drugs that might help you feel better. Often, um, what is very helpful is to bring somebody with you. I think patients who come with a family member are more likely to speak up, and their family member can also be their sounding board to you know, say how severe they think it is. So you're not in a vacuum. It's important to you know, round up all your troops and uh, have them be a part of your journey. So I think with that, um, I will stop and pass it back over to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Smith. That was really outstanding, and it's a wonderful overview of, uh, again, building on Dr. Martin's presentation, but just an overview of, uh, of the topics that you addressed and just really giving people even more comprehensive information and allowing them to come up with more questions, um, which we're going to take soon. Before we take the questions, I just want to say a few words about the services you can access from Cancer Care. Um, so Cancer Care offers um, free psychosocial programs and services to people living with um, all cancers and, of course, lymphoma as well. And we do offer um, those services provided by oncology social workers. Um, they are trained uh, social workers with master's level training in social work and in oncology. They um, actually offer a number of services. So one thing we do offer is practical and financial assistance, which makes a very big difference for people, help with transportation to treatment, home care, child care, medications. And we also have a copay foundation, which can often help with some of the costs of treatment, um, the actual costs of the actual treatments themselves. Um, we also offer individual counseling and, uh, and groups. We have lots of telephone support groups, and we have over 138 online support groups, and those are on every topic you could imagine, from being a caregiver to different specific types of cancers or different types of lymphoma to actually um, different um, to for young adults, for older adults, so really um, many different topics, and those are all listed on our website, and you'll be getting links to all these this information um, when you when you when you finish the when we finish this call today, you'll get an evaluation, and that will include any information that we any of us have provided, just to make it easier for you to access that information. Um, we also do offer, of course, lots of these workshops. They 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 happen quite frequently, and we have um, various publications, and of course, a website. And of course, um, I also do want to mention. Um, that um, our collegial organizations on this call today, the Lymphoma Research Foundation, the Leukemia Lymphoma Society, they also offer uh, financial assistance and copay foundation and also have uh, call centers as well. So just so that you're aware that there are many, many resources. Most importantly, we wouldn't want any one of you to think that there are not resources out there for you. Now, with that all being said, uh, we now have time for questions, and I know that some of you are already starting to queue up for questions, but I'm going to ask, so some of you know how to do this already. However, I'm going to ask Crystal if she would explain to you how to queue up for questions. We're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible, and um, 
So, and if we don't get to your question at the very end of the call, I'll explain to you how to get your questions answered. But let's see if we can take the majority of your questions. Hi, Crystal. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And our first question comes from Ron R. Your line is open. Hi, thank you for the teleconference. It's very informative. I have a quick question about a rare condition or disease that comes uh, about sometimes rare with uh, long-term treatment. The abbreviation is PML, which I'll probably mispronounce, progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy. And my question is, how rare is it? And when it does show up, is it more or less associated with one type of treatment versus another? Well, thank you, Ron, for that question. And Dr. Smith, could you address that question in a general way? Yes, absolutely. So uh, PML, and you pronounced it beautifully, um, is an incredibly rare complication um, that was that is included, I think, in the black box for many of the monoclonal antibodies that are out there. And this is essentially a virus, the JC virus, that is attacking the brain. Um, and this virus can get reactivated uh, in people who have significant uh, loss of their immune system or immunosuppression. Uh, I think this is more of a, I mean, it's so incredibly rare. Uh, it has a lot to do with how much treatment people have received. So if they've received, you know, eight, nine, ten lines of prior therapy, then perhaps the, you know, risk goes up, and especially if they've received other immunosuppressing uh, treatments. But I will say that I, I don't think it's unique to rituximab. I don't think it's unique to any particular drug. It's more a reflection of how immunosuppressed somebody might be. Awesome. Thank you. Um, and do we have another telephone question, or shall I move to the online questions, Crystal? And our next question comes from Carol M. Your line is open. Yes, um, I went into anaphylactic shock on rituxan. Is there a humanized form of um, something that is a monoclonal antibody that's equivalent to rituxan? Oh, thank you for that question. And um, Dr. Martin, do you want to address that question? Sure. So that's um, you know always a scary thing. It's also uh, extremely uncommon for somebody to have a true allergy to uh, rituximab. Uh, it, infusion reactions, uh, which can be occasionally very significant, are more common. Uh, true allergy or anaphylaxis to rituximab is, is pretty rare, but it can happen. It, we know that it's anaphylaxis because it comes along with other things that we see with anaphylaxis, including not just low blood pressure, but swelling of the lips and tongue and difficulty breathing. I think I can count on one hand the number of times that I've seen that at our institution over the past 15 years. Um, but it can happen. There are um, there are humanized, so obinutuzumab is a, a humanized version of rituximab, which means that it still has uh, some uh, protein or part of the protein from the original rituximab molecule. There's another version called ofatumumab, which is a fully human uh, anti-CD20 uh, monoclonal antibody. Ofatumumab has been evaluated in follicular lymphoma and is 
in fact active. It hasn't been compared to rituximab or binutuzumab, so we don't know if it's more or less effective. I have to admit that uh, in somebody with true anaphylaxis to uh, rituximab in the past, I would still be pretty cautious using uh, either binutuzumab or ofatumumab and would probably um, have them in the hospital potentially even in a very monitored setting before uh, trying them uh, once again. I don't know if Thank Tony you. has anything to add to that because it's not uh, super common. And uh, uh, yeah. Dr. Smith, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I think that's that's exactly right, which is it's important to determine if this is true anaphylaxis or if it's a very severe infusion reaction. Um, there's also a third type of reaction you can have, which is to develop antibodies against uh, parts of the monoclonal antibody protein. Um, it used to be called HAKA or HAMA. And, uh, you know, for people who have uh, really severe reactions, I think it's reasonable to switch to obinutuzumab or ofatumumab and to use steroids. Uh, it's important to know that you can still have a very severe infusion reaction with any of them. Um, but true anaphylaxis, I think, um, you know, doing this in a very carefully controlled setting and trying one of the, the, the less mouse-heavy uh, proteins makes sense. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. And then, um, thank you for that excellent uh, question. And um, our next question, Crystal? Thank you. Our next question comes from Denise M. Your line is open. Thanks so much for your time. Uh, my understanding is that researchers are still working on ways to identify patients uh, at the time of diagnosis as being high-risk patients versus patients uh, who may go a long time uh, without uh, treatment. And um, my uh, my experience and the experience of a number of other patients has been that at the time of diagnosis, healthcare practitioners uh, tend to tell them that uh, they're going to have a, a chronic condition that might flare up, et cetera, over the years. And I'm wondering why the general approach isn't to uh, tell patients, we wish that we knew uh, what your road was going to be, uh, but we won't know that for a number of years. And uh, perhaps Dr. Martin could respond to that. Thank you. Well, thank you for that question, um, Denise. That's excellent, Dr. Martin. Did you? Yeah, it is a it is an important question. I think because it um it impacts the way that people experience lymphoma. Right, our our um, our experience of lymphoma has a lot to do with uh, the emotions around it and uh, what our expectations are. And uh, it's, it's interesting how important language is to all of that and, and communication. And as Sony mentioned, I think uh, having uh, family members present is often uh, really critical to having a, um, or a friend, friends or family members around is, is, is a good way of having a better kind of a communication stream where, where things are more likely to be communicated and more questions will be asked and answered. I think, so we are getting better at uh, trying to figure out um, how follicular lymphoma is likely to behave and there are a variety of different sort of prognostic scores, the latest one including even uh, genomic testing. That said, I think um, there's still even amongst somebody with a given prognostic score, quite a bit of variability. And so the truth is, if we're being honest, that 
you know, we don't know until we know, right? We we can have some expectation, but the best we can do is to try to be uh, conscientious and uh, observe things carefully and look for changes over time. And um, some of that message may get lost either because it's not communicated very clearly or or um, there's so, m so much stuff being communicated that it can be missed, but I, I think it's a... Um, you know, I'm certainly always looking for better ways to communicate that message, and uh, your question is sort of a hint that maybe it's something that we probably do need to uh, be aware of if it's something that multiple uh, people are experiencing and questioning. I don't know if that helps to answer the question, but hopefully it's part Thank of you. it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, we have a question from one of our online participants, and this is for Dr. Smith. Um, I was diagnosed with follicular lymphoma in July 2017. In my PET CAT scan report last week, the radiologist suggested the new tumor growth and level of hypermetabolism um, indicate transformed follicular lymphoma. I also have strong B symptoms. How common is it to forgo a biopsy and proceed right to therapy? So again, if you could address this, Dr. Smith, in a general way, um, and if, if you need to repeat the question, I'm, I'm happy to do so. Yeah, no, I think that's a really important question, and you know, it goes back to when the disease, you know, when follicular lymphoma uh, shows signs of progression, it's really important to know whether or not it has transformed or not transformed, whenever possible. It's uh, helpful and important to get a biopsy to prove that the disease has transformed because that uh, gives biologic information on, you know, what's happening. But the truth is sometimes you can't biopsy a lymph node. It's located very deep inside the abdomen, and the risk of trying to get that tissue outweighs the benefit of just assuming it's transformed. And so then we start to use other uh, clues, if you will, that there is a transformation. So that might be B symptoms, which are fevers, night sweats, and weight loss, uh, or we might use the uptake on a PET scan. And in general, if the PET scan uptake is uh, close to 20 uh, or higher, the likelihood of transformation goes up. And uh, there's also a blood marker called LDH, and if the LDH is very high, uh, along with a PET scan that shows a very high uptake, along with a person who has symptoms, and the lymph nodes in a hard-to-reach location, I, I do think there are, it's reasonable to go ahead with assuming there's transformation without the biopsy. Um, but we do generally try to get the biopsy. It's just if we can't, then those are some of the clues we use. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, um, and our next question, Crystal, from one of our telephone participants. Thank you. Our next question comes from William B. Your line is open. Uh, yes, uh, I'm an internist. Um, the microbiome is a very hot area of research in the causation of uh, and even treatment of lymphomas as well as uh, other cancers. What centers are now using a next-generation DNA sequencing to identify uh, bacteria within the tumor biopsy? Thank you. Well, thank you for that question. Um, Dr. Martin, do you want to address that? Yeah, so that's an interesting one. I don't think I um, have been asked uh, recently. So the microbiome refers to the bacteria or other cells that are uh, 
in all of us all of the time under normal and uh, potentially abnormal circumstances. We're all carrying around, believe it or not, about five pounds of bacteria in our, in our GI tract and on our skin. And for the most part, these organisms uh, exist in a symbiotic relationship with us, but can, under certain circumstances, uh, either due to changes in the immune system or changes in the microbiome, be associated with different states of uh, health and illness. And um, there have been some scenarios where certain lymphomas have been associated with uh, pathological bacteria or infections. Um, there, there have been some attempts to study the microbiome in the GI tract among people uh, with follicular lymphoma uh, in a sort of observational way, but uh, that really, that effort is just getting going, and it will likely take literally uh, hundreds if not thousands of people to account for the uh, diversity of the microbiome that exists from person to person in order to look for differences uh, and associations with um, outcomes. Uh, I'm not aware of any um, efforts to look at bacteria in the present, in, in actual lymph node uh, specimens, and um, right now I'm not sure that that would uh, be very high yield. Um, but, but certainly it's worthwhile looking at the microbiome in the GI tract of people with lymphomas to see how that uh, impacts outcomes. But that research is uh, also expensive, uh, time-consuming, and will take a lot of effort from a lot of participants and, and researchers. It's an interesting question, for sure. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and our next question, Crystal? Thank you. Our next question comes from Jackie M. Your line is open. Hi. I've been through the rituxan, the obinutizumab, with only a six-month cancer-free period. I'm currently about eight months in on the obinutizumab, but my question is, uh, there's a recent study regarding loneliness and its impact on everybody's quality of life, just as poor cancer patients, but that it's so debilitating that like in smoking almost a pack of a cigarette a day, do you guys have any concerns, plans, thoughts on how to stem this problem um, that is obviously a huge, huge factor in my treatment and my quality of life because I'm not really considered a transplant candidate because I have no support? Any ideas? Anyone? That's an excellent question. I'm just going to, as Carolyn Nestor, I'm just going to start off by saying that loneliness is a, a, a very important factor in um, in many people's lives in, in coping with cancer and lymphoma. And indeed, um, one thing we hope just being on the call today that you get a sense that there are lots of people who share your concerns about being alone and um, and that there are a lot of people coping as you are with uh, follicular lymphoma. And Indeed, um, there are many support groups available um, that many people find helpful to um, access. So um, those are just some thoughts I have. I'll come back to them, but I just want to be sure our speakers don't have some other thoughts about this before I continue to proceed. But I, I do think that there are a number of um, organizations and support systems out there that can 
if you don't have a support system right now that can help you to build one. That, that's the thing. Um, and actually can do that without even traveling anywhere, either on the telephone or online, or even just by talking to somebody um, who could be helpful. Um, yeah. I, I'll just, uh, if you don't mind, I'll chime in and just say, first of all, congratulations for being on this call. I think that is the first step. Um, and what you brought up about, you know, loneliness and not having a support system, it's absolutely something that we all care about, as, as Carolyn just said as well. And um, there's, there's, in fact, an entire field of something called psycho-oncology, and basically these are psychologists that are focused on what the oncology patient goes through. And, you know, sometimes people can have tons of family and still be lonely, and other times there's physically no one to talk to. And these are recognized problems. These are recognized challenges that, that are not good for your journey. And, um, you know, I think being on this call is a great step. And places like Lymphoma Research Foundation and local support groups um, are there for you. It, it really is... Um, does not have to be as lonely, I think, um, as, as it, you know, maybe has been. Excellent. That, that's an excellent point. And indeed, um, the Lymphoma Research Foundation, um, the Lymphoma Society, Cancer Care, Cancer Support Community, there are a host of organizations. You'll be getting a list of them. And perhaps I, I will give you a call after the call as well so we can talk a bit more and really try to connect you up with some of these resources. Um, and I think that, um, and I think as Dr. Smith has said, there are, there are whole research groups that are looking into, um, into this whole concept of loneliness. And, um, and we do all want to congratulate you for being on the call, actually to everyone being on the call today, because um, we can't all see each other raising their hands, but if everyone were to raise their hand if they were feeling a bit lonely, we might see quite a few hands going up. So I think it's not it's something that many people share um, with living with lymphoma or with any type of cancer. Um, thank you for that. Thank you for having the um, courage to ask that question. It's a really an important one. Thank you. Um, and our next question. And our next question comes from Bonnie Kay. Your line is open. Hi, thank you so much. I was wondering what percent of patients achieve a complete response after initial immunochemotherapy, and what, if any, significance it has? Thank you for that question. Dr. Um, Martin, do you want to address that question? So, yeah, so that's an interesting question, is what, what outcomes do we expect after giving treatment for somebody with follicular lymphoma and you know obviously the goal is uh, as I mentioned to try to um, minimize the impact of lymphoma on somebody's life and so uh, you know theoretically I suppose if somebody were asymptomatic um, and I could arrest the cancer so that it never grew again and never caused problems for 20 years even if it showed up on a PET scan I would be fine with that from a, a clinician perspective, obviously there's something to be said for feeling like you've gotten something out of it and the, you see it disappear on a scan and uh, on a biopsy, for example, it can, it can be certainly emotionally rewarding. And, and certainly it does appear as though uh, people who have good responses to treatment, uh, whether that's a CAT scan or a PET scan, which is shown to have increasing relevance, 
or even uh, newer molecular testing for what we call minimal residual disease. All of these sort of markers of depth of response have been uh, associated with more durable responses. Um, at this point, though, I'm not sure that we know whether um, those outcomes should necessarily be a goal of therapy or whether they're simply a marker of somebody having a lymphoma that is particularly responsive, biologically speaking, to whatever treatment it is we apply. So, um, you know, again, it's hard to know whether if somebody does not get a complete response to rituximab, that means we should necessarily be escalating treatment to the next and most aggressive uh, treatment or, or whether it simply means that we need to find a, a different kind of treatment that works in a different way. Um, so, so it's, uh, you know, the question is sort of a tricky one in that obviously I think we hope for a deep response, whether that's a complete response or not. But, and the majority of people do get a, a complete response by a PET scan. But I, I think uh, more critical is to um, sort of be clear on what the goal is and uh, try to find the treatment that accomplishes those um, goals with as minimal uh, toxicity as possible. Thank you. And this will be our last question. I'm going to address it to um, both our speakers, um, so both Dr. Smith and and Dr. Martin, is there any lifestyle issues that seem to be helpful in delaying a recurrence of lymphoma? So Dr. Smith, do you want to start first? Yeah, that's a really important question, and I think something we hear all the time is, you know, what can I do uh, to help, you know, keep this away? Um, in terms of, I mean, my general advice, you know, is that this is a good opportunity for people to get into uh, better health in general, whether that's you know, a more balanced diet with lower sugar and, you know, more exercise, um, you know, avoiding tobacco and alcohol. I think those are all very general things. Um, from a science perspective, something that's been kind of interesting is that there is some interest in vitamin D levels um, being important in follicular lymphoma. Um, I don't really know where that's going to head, but that is the only, uh, you know, diet and lifestyle issue that I know of where you know, there may be an impact of vitamin D on outcomes. Excellent. Thank you. And, and Dr. Martin, did you want to add anything? Or? Yeah, I'll just echo Dr. Smith's comments in, in saying that I think, you know, people with follicular lymphoma for the most part are going to live for a long time, and so I, I don't usually use this as an excuse to go out and buy a Ferrari and start bungee jumping, right? The, the idea is to I tell people that the more healthier you are, the easier my job is. And so uh, I think a healthy diet and exercise routine are, are worthwhile. There is certainly a lot of data in oncology in general that uh, has associated uh, exercise, aerobic exercise in particular, with improved outcomes. And there are biologically plausible explanations for why exercise might even um, impact lymphoma outcomes. Uh, there's some interest in things like ketogenic diet, and there is an active research study at Cornell and Columbia looking at that. I think that I would not advise somebody to try a ketogenic diet outside of a, a research study because it can be very onerous. The other thing I think that is worth mentioning is that there are a lot of people that are willing to take all of our money uh, in exchange for a supplement 
uh, with the promise that it will change our life. And I think that as a scientist, uh, I'm very uh, dubious to accept those claims without really clear evidence that that's true. And so while I'm not anti-supplement, I'm anti-getting um, ripped off. And, and so I think, you know, supplements may have a role. I'm certainly willing to accept that they can have significant benefit, but I would just be very cautious in, in terms of how much much relevance we're going to assign to them and, and certainly be careful not to spend a lot of money on them. Well, thank you. And, and this has been an amazing call. I want to thank both Dr. Martin and Dr. Smith. This has been just an extraordinary um, program today. Um, it's extraordinary. We have wonderful speakers, wonderful um, participants asking such wonderful questions, and those of you who've been listening as well. And I did say that I know some of you have still questions. We could probably go on a good part of the afternoon, but I realized that we had said the call would last about an hour. So um, for those of you who still have questions, I just want to let you all know that there are places to go to get your questions answered. So the first thing I would recommend is, of course, your healthcare team. Your treating healthcare team, they know you the best. And even those of you who asked questions today, I would take them back to your treating healthcare team because, again, they know you the very best. They have all your specific records and everything like that, and they could, since it's a, a, a practice run, for going to ask your physician. And for those of you who didn't yet have a chance to ask your physician the questions, do ask your physicians. And I know you also like to go to websites and check things out. So um, we will get, you will get the evaluation, and you will have a list of organizations that we think might be very useful for you to go to for information. And one of them, of course, we've mentioned the Lymphoma Research Foundation, the Leukemia Lymphoma Society. Um, those are organizations that really do have tremendous amounts of information about uh, follicular lymphoma, and I think that would be a wonderful place for you to get information from them, actually. Um, and they each have telephone numbers and websites. Um, for those of you who wish to pursue any type of support or counseling services from Cancer Care, you can call us at our 800 number or visit our website at www.cancercare.org. Um, and we will provide all that information, of course, in your evaluation forms. Most importantly, because the issue of loneliness came up on the call today, we would not want any one of you to leave this call today feeling that you are alone. We know that you often feel alone. You may feel alone with a lot of people around you, and you may feel alone when you're just by yourself. Either way, um, we want you to know that you're now part of a very large community of support. There are lots of resources for you out there. A lot of people who would want to talk with you, want to be of assistance to you, and help you. And for free, no cost, I think, as Dr. Martin said, we don't want you to have to spend money to get the support that you need. Um, and many of these nonprofit organizations offer that type of support. So uh, please do take advantage of that support. I also want to mention to you that Cancer Care now has a meditation app, and many of you may find that very helpful. It's a relaxation app. So it has relaxation exercises. It's free, and you may visit our website and get that app from the website and, and try it out and see if it works for you. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today. I want to wish you all a very fine day, and thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.